Welcome to Bread and Thread, a podcast about food and domestic history. I'm Liz. And I'm Hazel. We are two friends who studied archaeology together and love history and social history in particular, and also making things historical and otherwise. And we normally start by talking about what we've been up to. So what have you been making or baking? Um, so I've been digging a lot of the time since we last <laughs> recorded so i haven't i haven't done an awful lot um yeah cuz i so i volunteer with this uh kids archaeology club mm-hmm. and we we've, we've been digging up, up in rural lancashire so i've i've been very tired and That's very not in the house uh, in that case we can replace this section with what have you dug up recently um We've we've had some cool stuff. Like it's it's a Roman Vicus, so we got some bits of hypercost and stuff. Ooh. But also some medieval pottery and the head of a Victorian doll. Creepy, but I like it. Yeah. Um <laughs> I did start one project. I've started making the knives out jumper for Nick. I have not seen that movie, but I am aware of the jumper because you sent me a picture and it's it's cable heaven. Yeah. Um, unless you're making it, in which case it's cable hell. It has <laughs> thirteen different thirteen cabled sections, uh, using three different cable charts which are all different numbers of rows. Wow. Okay. Um <laughs> but I'm I'm gradually working my way through I'm I'm like I've just started, I'm just on the back at the moment but i'm i'm getting there learning the pattern and it's brick red which is going to look really nice on nick awesome i'm i'm excited to see the jumper be birthed oh i did also i posted a not quite floss tube on youtube oh, yes i did a craft diary I am invisible goats. Go watch it if you want to see the things that I talk about making. Now we both do videos about our crafts. Yeah. <laughs> I will link both our YouTubes in the episode description. So, um, I did I mention seed cake last time? I can't remember. I think you did. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Well, I I can't carry on on the back of that for much longer then. Um. <laughs> haven't really done much baking actually recently I need to get back into that um but I have been working on a project to make myself a knitted vest um with hand spun yarn so I finished spinning the yarn yesterday and it's like the the finest I've ever done it's a a three-ply sock weight so that's spinning three very thin threads and then spinning them all together to make a three-ply um yeah, so that was really cool. And then I dyed it with hibiscus flowers, which turned out amazing. And I'll pop a picture on the Twitter. Um, yeah, and it's it's a really lovely kind of mauve colour. Oh, nice. Yeah, so that's currently just drying. And then hopefully I can start knitting soon, which is exciting. Um, and it was, it was a lot of fun because um, the hibiscus dye bath is like blood red. So... 
it looked like I was definitely murdering someone in my kitchen. Um, but now I have lovely moments on your Instagram. Yarn. Did look slightly like you were cleaning up a crime scene. Yeah. Um, if anyone's interested in that whole process, start to finish, I'm documenting it on my Instagram stories, so you can check that out. Uh, yeah. I will so also put a link to Hazel's Instagram in the episode description. Uh, so my topic for this episode is rose hips oh yummy and i picked that because i am gearing up to make some rose hip syrup though we've got a really big um bush in our garden which has a lot of rose hips so i'm just kind of hovering around them trying to figure out whether or not they're ready yet but i haven't really done this before i tried to do it last year and it didn't work so this year is gonna hopefully be it um now why would i want to make Anything out of rose hips? You might ask. <laughs> Some of you, maybe. I don't know. Uh, they are extremely high in vitamin C. Like, they have more vitamin C than oranges. Which is quite amazing, really. Is that is that by weight, or...? Yes. Nice. Yeah. Um, and, in fact, they're, they're so high in vitamin C that they've been used as a winter source of vitamins for thousands of years and um, particularly in World War II uh, when there was a lack of fresh fruits and stuff they were they were used for health purposes but I will get to that later. Uh, so for anyone that is uh, not that familiar with um, like forage and wild foods and stuff the rose hip is the fruit of the rose bush so like even if you weren't aware what they were you've probably seen them um and roses are actually related to apples um so yeah they they have these fruits uh, they're, um, we're, we're secretly back on apples we are everything leads back to apples i don't make the rules <laughs> <laughs> There are obviously many species of rose across the world and they have they all have rose hips, although they will look different. Um like some cultivated roses have these massive kind of ferical ones and then um the most of the wild roses are more kind of rugby ball shaped, sort of oval. But all of them contain vitamin C. Um, the highest concentration is apparently in the wild roses. So the one that um, Liz and I would be most familiar with is the dog rose in Britain, or Rosa oh, canina. Yes, canina. Yeah, which can often be found in the hedgerows. Um, although there are, of course, wild, wild rose varieties all over the world. And... There are actually very conflicting stories for well, explanations for why it's called the dog rose. Like I've heard, I've heard that it's because it's a wild rose and therefore only fit dogs, which seems kind of harsh. Um, I've heard that it's because they uh, they appear, they fruit when Orion and Sirius, the dog star, is overhead in the sky so in the autumn winter um in the northern hemisphere uh and i've heard it's because 
the ancient Romans believed that it could cure rabies. So, <laughs> you know, one of those. That's interesting because I've also heard of dog daisies. Hmm. Yeah, I I don't know. It might be, and I, and I can never find a, a reason why those are called dog either. Um, uh, there's actually another one that it might be something to do with the leaves. Like it's a corruption of dagging, which means like kind of a snipped look, like different, almost like raggedy bits along the the leaf. But hmm. yeah. Uh, no one actually knows. <laughs> There's a lot of explanations, but no one answer. Uh, anyway, so in Britain, the dog rose is um, the one of the most nutritious plants that that are still um, there in winter, and so uh, they've been a, a part of um, rural recipes and and folk recipes for pretty much ever um yeah they're as i said they're higher in vitamin c than other things like sea buckthorn um which also contains a fair bit black currants are also quite good for vitamin c oranges of course but rose hips are more higher than all of them you can fit so much vitamin c in this bad boy um <laughs> slaps rosebush um <laughs> Don't slap it too hard. <laughs> yeah, don't try this at home. Uh, it's been used in the traditional medicine of many different cultures, not just in Britain. Um, in Poland, they were made into wine. Uh, they can also be eaten, like just as they are, although you have to kind of squeeze out the inside so that you don't get the the seeds and the hairs. Um, the hairs on the inside are really, really fine, and that's why you can make them into itching powder. Yeah, my well, mum told me that she used to do that. One of the people I went to primary school with just shove it down the back of someone's shirt and watch them get itchy. Yeah, I definitely <laughs> remember doing that as a kid as well. Well, <laughs> I don't think it ever worked that well for me. Like, mum told me that you can use them for itching powder, and then I was like, ha ha, I'm going to do that. And then I must have done it wrong because. It didn't produce as annoying an effect as I hoped. I mean, I I was the pranky in this situation, and it definitely <laughs> worked on me. Okay, well, t- testimonial. Um, <laughs> maybe we've just got tougher rose rose hips up north. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> uh, they're a lot more aggressive. <laughs> so apparently, there's also an Iraqi Kurdish remedy. Um, where they're used as a diuretic and for blood-related disorders. Uh, They make an infusion for things like gastric ulcers and digestive complaints in Turkey. Um, I mean, if I was feeling ill, I wouldn't turn down a a rose hip infusion, I have to say. Exactly, yeah, they can be used as infusions, um, teas, jams, syrups, jellies, um, basically anything that will get that those good good vitamins into you not just vitamin c um they actually have a lot of other benefits historically um the ancient romans believed it can cure rabies um or literally the bite of a mad dog they may have got this from the ancient greeks according to pliny the elder (laughs) our old friend pliny 
Did I? I still don't know if it's Pliny or Pliny. I, is it Pliny? It's, it's Pliny. Okay, Pliny. According to Pliny the Elder, <laughs> the brother of Pliny. Um, I blame Sawbones. Though <laughs> uh, he he writes this story um, about a Greek woman who had a dream that she needed to send an an infusion of rosehip to her son who was a soldier who'd been bitten by a bad dog and needed curing of rabies and she did it and it worked uh so there you go it was also used in ancient china and persia um it's so it's basically been used around the world Uh, it was used by uh, lots of different north american indigenous peoples as a winter source of vitamin c and in traditional medicine as well um so yeah, pretty pretty widespread for something that is so little used now in many places. So what what's the wild range of rose hips? Because that's quite a spread of cultures. Yeah, so from what I can gather, um it's all across Asia and Europe, um, which, you know, similar to, to the apple. It's fairly easy to spread all across there. Um, but then I uh, also found um, evidence of, you know, for example, uh, North American indigenous peoples using the rosehip. So it must have been like a pretty established wild plant there as well. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, it seems to be something that can be found in some form or other pretty much all over the world at least definitely the northern hemisphere yeah so um i don't think you mentioned africa no i i wasn't able to find that much information really um but i mean certainly now um roses can be found all over the world um yeah, if anyone does have any more information on like the domestication of the rose and its its spread across the globe and wild varieties of rose, I would be very interested to hear. That feels like a future episode, doesn't it? Oh yeah, the the rose. Yeah, because we've done the rose hip. Well, we're doing the rose hip, but the rose itself is is a whole another thing. Like, there's a lot of symbolism to play with there. A lot of stuff it's been used for cosmetics remedies um jewelry like all sorts of things so yeah that's Putting a cool it on one. the list <laughs> whack it on the list so we know that the rose hip has been used as food and for other purposes for thousands of years because we have archaeological evidence for example um waterlogged seeds were found in a late Neolithic Swiss lake village site in large enough quantities to suggest that they were being deliberately collected and stockpiled. Um, they've, also, they've actually been found at several different Neolithic sites in Europe. Um, and it it kind of suggests that like people knew that they were good for you. Like, this was a thing that was worth stockpiling for winter and had benefits. For listeners who don't know, um, just because 
I I I worry that things like Neolithic are ones that we assume everyone knows. Um, oh, Neolithic sure. is the part of the Stone Age when we had farms, basically, and houses. Yeah, the when when we were in in one place mostly rather than hunter gatherers is Neolithic. Mm-hmm. So that's what about ten thousand years ago. I mean, it it depends on where, but that's that. I think that's a a decent um, approximation. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. So they've also been found in medieval latrines, which is a pretty obvious indication that they were eaten. <laughs> um. And most famously used in World War II Britain as a substitute for oranges, uh, as I mentioned earlier. So the Ministry of Food organised volunteers during World War II to collect lots of rose hips because they couldn't import oranges into the country. And it was a real worry that people were going to get, um, that, that nutrition was going to be very poor in the winter. Yeah, so, like winter is a genuine risk in Northern Yeah, Europe. like in the medieval periods, like people would commonly come out of winter with a little touch of scurvy. Um, but uh, yeah, so they organised these volunteers to collect rose hips um, because there, there were a, a, a lot more hedgerow at the time and a lot more wild roses around. Um, and they issued these recipes on how to make it. Apparently, children got threepence a pound for collecting rose hips, which is pretty good money if you're a kid in the 1940s. Yeah, that's not bad. I mean, that that will buy you some sweets. <laughs> um, that's and they <laughs> they issued um some pretty exacting directions on how to make it because you apparently have to make it in a certain way so that it doesn't lose the vitamin c i mean that makes Um, sense because a a lot of a lot of cooking vegetables at that point was probably just boiling them to death (laughs) and you do boil them you do boil them but apparently it's not the boiling that has an impact on the vitamin c it's the crushing because the vitamin c is contained in sort of within the fruit and when you crush it it exposes it to enzymes that will start to destroy it so the guidance that the ministry of food gives is that you need to crush them and then get them in the boiling water as soon as possible or like chop them up and then so you denature the enzymes quicker yeah so do it into the water if you can or sometimes um the recipes say to just boil them and then like mash them up in the water um so that the the water can absorb the vitamin c as the juice comes out uh so i did actually track down an article from the british medical journal in 1942 where they did an experiment on whether or not rosehip syrup would be 
a useful method of keeping people healthy in the winter um because they they actually did put like research into this and they were able to measure the amount of vitamin c at the time so the they tested um different kinds of things like blackcurrant puree uh the rosehip syrup lemons limes oranges tin tomatoes um orange juice I wouldn't have thought of drying tomatoes, but I guess they, uh, yeah. they are about that right category, aren't they? They got some. They they haven't got as much as things in your citrus category, but but they contain. Yeah, they're, they're red and acidic, which means they probably have a decent amount. Yeah. Um. So the the winner in all of these things that they tested was a rosehip syrup made by Mrs. Leyland, who was matron of the Islington Institution. And very... specify whose rosehip syrup it was. <laughs> exactly. So I will post a link in the Twitter to the recipe for Mrs. Leyland's rosehip syrup, which is helpfully given in the article. So it involves four pounds of rosehips and two and a half pounds of sugar. Uh, you wash them, put them in the pan, cover them, bring them to the boil, simmer them for 10 minutes, then mash them with a wooden spoon. You have to strain them twice with a jelly bag, or you can just use like a piece of muslin or some kind What's of... What's a jelly bag? A jelly bag is for straining jellies, so it's like a um, like a fine weave bag. And you put your, like, jelly, like, pre-strained jelly in there. And it just strains through. Like, it, it's the weaver's, um, it lets the, the juice drip through without letting any of the, the fruit pulp in. So how far off am I if I just imagine a giant tea bag? Because that's, that's what that's making me think. I guess, yeah. A lot of the time they would be left to hang for a few hours and just, like, everything drips through. So, I mean, you can also just use, like, a piece of muslin or you can use cheesecloth in the case of, like, more, like, larger things that you don't need the small holes for. Mm -hmm. Um, So... Yeah, you you have to strain it twice so that you get those very fine hairs out because you don't want to be drinking one of those accidentally. No. Don't drink the itching powder. No. No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, and then you would like add the sugar and bring it back to the boil, simmer it until it reduces down a bit. And then you've got your syrup. You bottle it, and it keeps for a few months, actually, so it will keep through the winter. Nice. And actually, syrup has quite a lot of uses. Like, you can put it in drinks, you can put it on your porridge, um, you can use it for all sorts of things, really. So you yeah, can even put have, some... I did come coffee. across... Um... I think it was lamb with rosehip syrup as a Ooh. a Middle Eastern dish. Okay. 
I can't remember where I came across it, but it was gorgeous. Wow, sounds pretty good. I mean, yeah, rosehip syrup is is meant to be pretty tasty, um, and like rosehips in general. So, yeah. And apparently, it's the wild ones that are tastier. So, if you can get to a dog rose or your local variety of wild rose, would recommend that one. So, yeah, that's that's a pretty um short history of the use of rose hips it kind of seems like throughout history they've been one of these things that people worked out was good for you but not necessarily why it was good for you and so i think that's why we have it used for it's, it's one of those things that people know is good but ends up getting used for a lot of different complaints because it will probably have like a general effect of like being healthy for you um and yeah i think that's why it it's found we have all of these folk remedies and recipes involving rosehip yeah it does seem to be kind of a thing whenever people discover something is good for one medical problem they just go oh well, clearly this will cure everything this is the one thing we've been missing I mean, yeah, we still do that. <laughs> Ivermectin. Oh, is that the thing? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let's do local larder before we get political. <laughs> Hello, I'm Mod Pencil from Probably Bad RPG Ideas. If you'd like to hear discussions of ideas such as what if in my urban fantasy game magic turns out to not be real? And what is the best rules for an O? Then listen to the Probably Bad podcast, which is available on everywhere podcasts are, and also YouTube. Or check out our Tumblr and Twitter. Yeah. Um. So this one, I'll admit it's another one that isn't particularly local, but tis the season. Um. And I was curious how long this has been a thing because it's ubiquitous now. Um. So I have been reading about pumpkin spice lattes. Excellent. It is indeed the season. And I don't care if it makes me basic. Well, Everyone loves pumpkin spice. Apparently pumpkin spice lattes or PSLs, as they are <laughs> apparently now known, like it's a thing to just abbreviate it to PSL, um, have been around since 2003, which I did not realize oh okay i always think of it as a sort of part of the hipster 2010 era but i guess yeah, like because it was kind of it was the thing the era when people criticized teenage girls for liking things mm. pumpkin spice lattes were high on that list pumpkin spice has got to be a lot older though like as a concept it definitely is um I actually found, um, yeah, so the term mixed spice, referring to uh, what in Britain are, is called pudding spice, or in the US is pumpkin spice. Uh, so the term mixed spice goes back at, at least as far as 1828. Um, the term pumpkin spice specifically goes back as far as, sorry, the specific blend being used for pumpkins goes back as far as 1796. I did not expect up, that. 
shows up in Amelia Simmons' American Cookery, the first cookbook published in the United States. <laughs> wow. Yeah, there's a recipe for um, pumpkin pie, spelled P-O-M-P-K-I-N. Aww. I don't um, know why, but that makes it sound cuter. <laughs> it sounds like a little baby pumpkin. A pumpkin. So it it's a very basic recipe because it's 18th century. Uh, step one. One quart stewed and strained, three pints cream, nine beaten eggs, sugar, mace, nutmeg and ginger, laid into paste, number seven or three, with a dough spur, cross and checker it, and baked in dishes three quarter of an hour. Number two. One quart pint of milk, one pint pumpkin, Four eggs, molasses, allspice ginger in a crust. Bake one hour. Like, it's not what we would now call a helpful recipe, but that's definitely a pumpkin pie with a recognisable pumpkin spice to it. Yeah, that sounds like what I imagine a pumpkin pie would be. I don't think I've ever actually eaten, like, a pumpkin pie. Well, it's hard to get actual eating pumpkins in the UK rather than carving pumpkins. Yeah, and also... It's, it's getting easier. I'm going to try and make a pumpkin pie this year, I think. I'd like to try, like, a proper one. Like, I mean, I've had plenty of, like, pumpkin soup, savoury pumpkin, but mm. I've, I've never eaten sweet pumpkin, and I'm interested. Um, There's a, a Betty Crocker... Um... DIY pumpkin spice, which is 18 parts cinnamon, 4 parts nutmeg, 4 parts ginger, 3 parts cloves, and 3 parts allspice. It's a very cinnamon heavy one. Uh, Yeah. That's a lot of... I don't think I want my pumpkin to be doing the cinnamon challenge. (laughs) Um, But, I mean, obviously now you can buy pumpkin spice blends uh, at various uh, big US chains. And you can buy pudding spice, which, as I say, is basically the UK name for the same thing, mm-hmm. in a lot of supermarkets. I feel like the, the traditional like winter spice blend is pretty much just cinnamon, ginger, cloves and nutmeg, right? Yeah, sometimes allspice and cardamom get in there as well. Mm. Um, because there's a Dutch spice mix which has cardamom in, which is used for um, Sinterklaas, which Mm. is a sort of St. Nicholas celebration in December, called, um, if my Dutch friend is listening, please don't hate me, I'm doing my best, Uh, Hochkruden or Speculaaskruden. yeah, which is basically cinnamon, nutmeg, ginger, cardamom. Um, but the actual pumpkin spice latte itself, which originally it was just part of a group of limited edition um, sort of Christmas drinks, including like a peppermint one, eggnog latte. Uh, toffee flavours 
but this this pumpkin spice flavor was right at the top when they were doing the focus groups for Christmassy flavors. Um, to the and it was so popular that they actually had to step up production of the flavoring to keep <laughs> up with demand. Wow! And this is in two thousand and three. <laughs> when it was just being tested in Vancouver and Washington DC and nowhere else. Naturally, after that, the next year they just rolled it out. Yeah. Just everywhere. That's interesting because I I honestly don't see it being associated with specifically Christmas that much. It's more no, of a nowadays like, it's autumnal. Just... Yeah, this year they brought it out in at the end of August. Hmm. Like the pumpkin spice latte has been out for about two weeks as of recording this episode this year. I don't know why this is affecting me so much. Like I don't even drink coffee. <laughs> I've never no, drunk I either, but I love latte. pudding spice. <laughs> I would smell one, definitely. But... I like when Nick gets one, and I just sort of sit and smell it. <laughs> Do they do other things? Like, do they do a pumpkin spice hot chocolate? Because I would drink that. I'm going to actually check that. Check check the Starbucks full menu. Like, that is... That is one of the only things that would induce me to spend money on a large drink. I mean, I've made pumpkin spice hot chocolate myself, and it's very good. Mm. Uh, I, c- I can only see it pop up in a... Um secret menu website and those are dodgy at best oh, um, but in 2015 when they changed the recipe to actually include pumpkin what yeah i i i was surprised as well i suppose when you think about it it the pumpkin spice is just spice for the pumpkin it doesn't contain the pumpkin so i guess I wouldn't necessarily expect there to be pumpkin in the drink. Yeah, apparently they they experimented with different ratios of pumpkin to spice and ended up deciding not to bother putting pumpkin in. Then in 2015, they decided to after all. Okay. Was Um, it controversial? It is controversial, but for a really (laughs) silly reason, which I'll get into. But apparently you can order, because it's it's, the flavours in a syrup. So you can order other drinks with that syrup in, apparently. Ah. Um, I mean, personally, I do not go to Starbucks because they don't make very good drinks as a general rule, but I'm sure other places also do pumpkin spice. Also, like, I don't think it would be too hard to make your own pumpkin spice syrup. Like, all you want to do is simmer some spices and add sugar and reduce it. There are many recipes online for making your own pumpkin spice sauce with or without yeah. pumpkin in. Like um, pumpkin spice. But yeah, the... So, I don't know if you're aware of Food Babe? I'm not. <laughs> Describe um, Food Babe, please. So Food Babe, otherwise known as Vanihari... Um, is a very pseudo-scientific food blogger who likes to complain about food ingredients. Okay. Um, 
So she complained about the caramel colouring that they used. Mm-hmm. Um, is it contains low levels of a substance which can be a potential carcinogen, um, but it is classified as food safe. And it's worth mentioning at this point that most things are classified as a potential carcinogen. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, yeah, she also kicked up a fuss about there not actually being pumpkin in it. Okay. Um, with other people pointing out that yeah, it's it's pumpkin spice, it's not pumpkin flavor. But hmm. I, they ended up putting pumpkin in it anyway. Okay. Um, and also removed the artificial colouring. So I think pseudoscience might have won that one. Okay. Huh. Apparently it didn't, didn't really affect the taste. Um, I don't know how you make coffee taste of pumpkin. I mean, it sounds like you kind of don't you just put <laughs> yeah. pumpkin in there to to quiet. You have the idea of pumpkin. people. Ah, <laughs> huh. cool. So yeah, um, that is that is pumpkin spice latte, and I I think this episode is going to be slightly short, but the. There wasn't a lot to say about pumpkin spice latte. I just felt obligated to talk about it, you know? Well, yeah, I think this is actually our sort of standard episode length. It's just that recently we've got a bit full of ourselves. (laughs) (laughs) And we're making that your problem, listeners. Yeah. I mean, you're you're still listening. (laughs) More for you. (laughs) But thank you. Yeah, also thank you. Um, we do appreciate it. Especially thank you because we recently got our first um, £5 level patron, which is very exciting. That means someone's actually reading my recipes. Oh, yeah. Um, so, yeah, we are on Patreon um, as Bread and Thread. If you want to support us, get access to a Discord and monthly recipes written by me. We are also on Twitter at Bread and Thread. Uh, you can email us on Bread and Thread Podcast at gmail.com if you have any ideas for future episodes or you want to tell us about Wild Rosehip coverage or also, anything else. We're also on Tumblr at Bread and Thread and on YouTube, uh, putting up old episodes weekly. You guessed it. We're also bread and thread on YouTube. Makes it easy. The branding is important. <laughs> um, yeah, there's. We're occasionally putting other videos up there. I think the only other one at the moment is me making tallow soap. But others will be forthcoming, I'm sure. I'm gonna do some some dye vlogs and stuff once I've got access to a better camera. That would be very cool. Yeah. So thank you for listening and yeah, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Talk about jeans. It's gonna be a jodcast.
Jodcast. <laughs>